Hello everybody and welcome back to the MJ podcast. This episode we're going to be delving really deep into my past and into my history. We're going to be touching on categories such as my adoption, my addiction, my mental health, everything leading up to my overdose and then the changes I implemented um, to get to the person you're listening to now. Um, So our guest that we've got in here today is um, a highly reputable um, journalist for over 30 years for The Times. I actually did a, a story back with um, our guest over a year ago and I'd just come back from rehab and um, and finished professional rugby. And I think honestly saying now, looking back at it, a lot of the stuff I said was, was kind of bullshit. Um, I was still using, I was still using alcohol. Um, I was still following that lifestyle of the the patterns, the bad patterns that I'll touch into um, as this podcast goes on. But I thought it'd be a really good opportunity to get, to get our guest here, Stephen Jones onto the, onto the podcast and be the perfect interviewer for me to delve into my history and give you guys an insight into who exactly Mark Jennings is. So Steve, thanks a lot for doing this, mate. How are you? Good, mate. I'm very good. And, um, Really pleased to hear from you that uh, the reaction you got from the first podcast with James O'Connor, the Aussie rugby great, was past all your expectations. Yeah, I think the feedback has been kind of overwhelming in 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 the aspect of people getting back to me, sending me messages over different platforms. Um, and a lot of people have said to me, you know, why didn't you kind of big up your guest more, James O'Connor, or kind of big yourself more, go more into how many games you played or international records. But the kind of idea behind this podcast is to focus on the internal and not the external, not people's credentials, but actually be able to bring people on and break them down and learn about their experiences and, you know, um, achievements that they've created over, the, over their life through the internal um, thing of the mind. Um, getting you know the thoughts, the feelings, and emotions from different people. So that that external things come when the internals there. Um, and you know the whole idea behind this podcast was for people who are struggling, whether it's a small issue or a big big issue, just to be able to ignite that ignite that flame that they've got inside them and and start something big, start a journey. And that's what I'm going to be doing each week on this podcast, bringing people you know tips, um, tricks, insights, knowledges, and experience for for people to start start moving in the right direction start moving correctly do you think that uh, first of all mark we should go back uh, uh it is an incredible story you've got it's certainly not in any form uh, a fun one it's an incredibly hard one one of the hardest i've ever seen do you think first of all um that you sometimes think you're lucky that you're still here to be able to talk about it yeah um 100 is a short answer to that i've over my years i've abused my body through a lot of different ways um, you know, I've, I've, I've wanted to kill myself a numerous amount of times. And I'll go on to that in, in the podcast. Uh, I'm, I'm very lucky to be here. I, I should have suffered a lot of heart attacks. Um, my ex-partner seen me in, in bad states, coming in, having panic attacks from two or three days, just, just constantly drinking and using drugs. I was lucky to survive, you know, the, the suicide attempt I had the first time. And I'm going to go into another suicide attempt in the in the podcast that only you know a handful of people know about um so i'm very very lucky to be here and to be bringing this message to you and i think that's why this podcast is going to be so powerful because from where i've come from to just these small changes that i've made to be able to you know want to wake up in the morning and put put that first foot forward and enjoy what's in front of me and really having having an open relationship with my brain and be able to 
now move forward is is what this podcast is going to be all about. But yeah, I'm 100% lucky to be to be here and, and bringing this podcast to you. We're really glad you are, mate. Um, first of all, uh, just for the listeners, what we're going to do is I think that we're going to do, Mark's going to discuss his background and uh, as he mentioned and the suffering and and all the downs and then. I think then we'll make it a two-part podcast so that next week, please all come back and uh, Mark will be talking through all the lessons he's learned and all the things he mentioned. So stay with us. It is an incredible story. Mark, we're going to start way back at the start. And I think people would be surprised to learn that the story begins in Namibia in Southwest Africa. Yeah, so I was born in Namibia. Um, My name was Yanni Jakobus-Schmidt, born February the 27th, 1993. And my biological mum, after I was after I was born, um, we kind of went from food bank to food bank. We had no home. We had no registered address. We had um, just we literally just had the clothes on our back. So we were going from food bank to food bank, you know, just getting by any, any way we could. And I become so malnourished that the authorities actually picked me up and um, I, I was given away for adoption. So I was in care for you know, a couple of months and then a a couple came and, and picked me up. One was an English lady and one was a, he was a South African, South African native. Um, so I lived with them for 12 months. They, they got me from a home in Namibia and then we flew over to Cape Town. I lived with them for a year and their relationship ended up breaking down and you know, he, he didn't want anything to do with her anymore. He didn't want anything to do with me anymore. So um, we ultimately got sent back over to England, back to um, my adoptive mum's mum's family. So, you know, I moved over to, to England with, with them. And I think from that moment there, I think, you know, we'll touch on more of this as it goes by, but I think her heart was broken from there. And I think that is a real cornerstone to kind of the way it goes through my... Um, years now coming up she so so you 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 come to england but it partly part of me would think oh that's that's a great move but actually when you got there of course it was a total culture shock your language was afrikaans you couldn't communicate very well and then i guess when you first start uh, going to the early years at school it's very very uh, culture shocking for you yeah, it was hard. Like I'd I'd gone around. Um, obviously, I'd been around these food banks, and I've gone into home around loads of other kids. Um, I'd spoke purely Afrikaans. Um, I looked a little bit different to all the other kids as well, just from coming from Namibia. Um, I had to pick up the language, so I, I had to spend a couple of months not even in school and and trying to learn the language and being able to interact with other people because I spoke no English. So I was already kind of on the back foot and then going into reception, I, I missed a couple of months um, because I just couldn't interact with other kids. I think socially I was just awkward, like I, I didn't know how to behave with other kids. So I think from the start I was already on the on the back foot. I was slow to, to pick up a lot of things, just, you know, everyday conversations I was slow picking up. Um, so kind of that was the foundation of coming over from Namibia straight into England I picked up everything very, very slow. And you, you, was was there a sort of early uh, kind of loneliness ab- ab- about it? And then I, I think I remember you saying that went on into kind of people reacting to you and even even bullying. Yeah, so we came over and we had absolutely no money. I remember we rented out this this tiny house um, close to the close to the primary school, 
and my adopted mum she was out all the time trying to get money so she was she was doing that through through cleaning she was working very long hours just to get get the money for us to get by so you know I was being passed off to neighbours and trying to stay at after school clubs all the time and then I'd come back and then she might have to go out for another shift so that isolation really began for me then and I was really slow picking up stuff at, at, at primary school and I started, I think that's when my first addiction behavior started because I was eating a lot of food then to, I don't know, escape reality. I was watching a lot of cartoons, anything that had escaped me from the reality I was in, I would do. And I started getting bullied as well, obviously, because I was putting on the size and I was slow. Like my speech wasn't good at all. Like I'd, I'd honestly say like the last probably six, seven, eight months, I've only just started my speech. Like I started quite a bit and around new people or big groups I'd stutter like a hell of a lot and that was just from that confidence over the coming over from England um, I had such low confidence I wouldn't be able to put a conversation together to people um, so it really started started then the addiction behavior the, the loneliness the isolation um, and not feeling a part of anything. I think you told me uh, once as well that um uh, your adopted mum was um, used to work in pubs. She used to regenerate pubs which, which weren't going so well. So actually, you 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 can started drinking. So almost in your early teens, you started having alcohol. Yeah. Um, so I touched on it last week on the on the podcast. I said my addiction behaviour started in school. It was always always food. And then as we started moving into pubs, you know, I found this. I found that the cellars there was. Um, alcohol on, on hand to me every time I needed it so I'd go downstairs and I'd just start drinking like from a really early age um as I got into end of the primary school um high school sorry like 13 14 years old I'd I'd go downstairs and I'd just grab a couple of bottles of beer I'd take them up to the room and I'd just I'd just drink them and stash them somewhere um so that again just falls into that addiction behavior from the start and that loneliness and isolation the um she was working working long hours again in the pub I was going into school and I was having a hard time every subject I was doing I, I couldn't grasp I couldn't I couldn't put my knowledge to it I couldn't I really found it hard to break break down any subjects and I, I, that showed in my grades and it, it showed in the way I was the confidence in myself and the way I was being as a human do you we, we there's one thing I think we should bring in here and I know you're going to talk about it later but at this stage you you were kind of missing what the other kids had and that was sort of being with your own blood your own flesh and blood yeah it was hard because especially as I started getting into rugby and getting some getting some groups um getting some friends and, and going around their house and having lunch and, and dinner whatever it might be and going into family environments where people are sitting down at tables and having having a meal together and these are things that I'd never done like I'd never had a, a, a dinner at home on a table socializing with you know parents I'd always come back from school and then gone straight up to my bedroom and 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 played PlayStation or ate or you know just sat there crying that, that's all I did like I, I'd never picked up um these other these other you know things that families do normal families I'd never I've never had that Sure, you, but there was a, you mentioned a, a schoolmaster called Mr. Atherton who, who got you into rugby. Now, um, you were 
in later life and maybe and at the time you were a very very fine rugby player you played for the England age group teams which very few people have which was a great honor and and you have the jersey but rather than curing anything you had to have this life in tandem of of playing rugby but but the the, the weight problems and the narcotics prescription drugs and drinking were still there with you yeah so when I was 16, I signed, I signed for, I signed professional contracts. I was the youngest person to ever do so. As you said, like I played England age groups. I played up a couple of years. Uh, I had a really good foundation there to to do something really good with with my life. But I'd always keep coming back to to these behaviours, and my mind was so negative all the time, like. I said it last week, I cannot remember a time when my mind was not negative. It always, always brings stuff up and drag me down all the time. It would take one comment in my mind for me to, to turn straight to the bottle or, or, or turn to drugs. And especially when I started playing professional rugby and, you know, I played, I played over 90 games over eight seasons, which isn't a lot if you break it down. And the amount of times there I was injured was a hell of a lot it was five six months a season and I remember the the first injury I got when I tore my bicep I was playing uh, for England in the 20s and it was our last six nations game and I felt my bicep go and I knew uh five five weeks later we were going to the world cup and I remember something just not being right and then getting getting a scan on it them coming to me and saying you tore your bicep off it's going to be six seven months and I think that's where it really started the severity of having that time away and then I remember it like distinctly like I I went into the gym and I I'd been given this you know rehab program and I was just in there by myself and everybody was out outside training and all these emotions from when I was younger just started coming up all the isolation all the loneliness and I was like, this is me for the next six months. How like, how am I going to cope with this for six, seven months? And I didn't cope with it. And the goals I'd been set from each injury to come back, I'd always come back a few weeks over it or a month over it because I was continuing self-medicated to try and get through these, through these issues. I was drinking, do, you know, the prescription drug started really early for me when I was about 19. So I was just trying to get through however I could. And I had all these emotions that were coming up from when I was a, you know, when I was a baby, really. And they were all just dragging me down, dragging me down. And I found myself drinking, you know, two, three times a week, but still being in a professional environment. Mm-hmm. You, 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 you also mentioned drugs. You, we're not just talking about a little bit of cannabis here. We're talking about uh, cocaine. Yeah, so it was probably around when I was 18, 19, I started taking started taking cocaine and I think because I was so unmotivated it just turns on that part of your your mind where you know it it turns on the the goal-driven parts of your brain so I think it just kind of gave me confidence I think that's the biggest thing with with cocaine it gave me that confidence that I thought I needed to be be a person that people people liked because inside like Mm. I said on your last article externally I was this happy guy, every social we had, I was, you know, trying to make people laugh around the club. I was always trying to make people laugh or at home with friends, but inside I was just crying. I was, I was this, 
I was living this absolute mask. I was living this absolute, absolute lie. Like I thought, what if I told anybody where I've come from, you know, what, what I've done or I just, I just didn't think I'd be accepted. And that was years of, years of saying this in my mind. And it started off so young. Like I remember when I just passed my driving test and there was a, there was a bridge right near where I lived. I remember just driving to this bridge. Like I must've drove there. Like I can count on probably two hands how many times I drove to this bridge and I just wanted to jump off like the voices in my head and I was just mm. I still have like really clear mental pictures of me just stood there and gritting my teeth and just crying my eyes out like thinking I need to end this like I'm living this mass like this is my reality how long is this going to go on for is it is, is it is it doubly painful because I mean I I used to watch uh, you play when you were professional and and you had a great reputation for being one of the lads etc I mean was there no one who, who who understood? Were you internalizing it so much that people didn't know that there was something going wrong there? I think in that environment, it we touched on it last week, it is very much external. It's, yeah. you know, lifting the weights, being aesthetically pleasing, looking good. And at the end of the day, a lot of these a lot of these people are colleagues with you and especially for me because I'd never open up to anyone I'd never I'd never been in a relationship with with a friend or some somebody like that who I could open up to and tell them about my past so going into a professional rugby player especially with the stigma especially when I joined in the first when I was 18 which is a good nine years ago now the stigma around it then was similar to boxers you know macho guys um you know the feelings don't get in the way they're they're there to run hard catch the ball and do a job and that was very much it and it was the same as when I was growing up I just wouldn't come find anybody or open up and I'm sure if I would have opened up to people I would have got the help I needed but mm. I didn't do it just because of what was going on in my mind. You, you then got this vicious circle because everybody knows um, when you get injuries and you're a promising player it's, it's, an, it's a nightmare but that was just one more nightmare to, to add to all your other nightmares. It's a very, very tough, almost unbearable story to listen to, Mark. How did it come to a head? Um, and when did you really almost realise yourself something had to change? So I just got another injury. Um, and I knew I was going to be out for a good couple of months. And my my, my use of my addiction was at its, at its highest. I was taking... 25 30 tablets of valium codeine um tramadol you know daily and i was taking a lot of cocaine a lot of alcohol and i I was just in this absolute pit i was going out for three or four four days at a time um i had a daughter that i was never around these were supposed to be the best times of my life i just had a daughter and I was supposed to be there for her, but, you know, I chose drugs, and I chose alcohol. I was just, my mind at that point had become so deep into darkness that I didn't know anything else. And I knew, I knew, I had in my head, I was like, I need, I need to end this. Like, I was just, there was no light and I needed, I needed to do it. Like, and what happened was I'd, I'd just come back from three or four days out and I took, every single tablet I could find in the in the drawer 
and my partner at the time and my my daughter were out they came back and I was just you know losing consciousness I was being sick everywhere and my eyes were rolling into the back of my head um she put me into the car and I still remember it you know the baby screaming in the back seat she's like pushing me trying to trying to wake me up we get to the hospital and then um you know I'm put on drips and whatnot and then stay over there overnight and you know, I, when I when I woke up, like I was like, I don't want to be here. Like, why have I woke up? And I hated the fact that I, I wasn't able to do it. Was she, were you upset that uh, you'd been saved? I was upset I'd been saved. I didn't want to be here. I'd I'd literally burned myself into a hole. Like the, the the couple of weeks leading up to the overdose, I'd just burned myself into a hole. I was getting ready for what was about to come. I knew I was gonna. I knew I was gonna commit suicide. I was just thinking in my head when I wanted to do it, and uh, and it ended up being on that day. And then, yeah, as I as I say, I woke up and I had, you know, I had regret. I, like, what could I have done different? What could I have done different so it would have, so I would have killed myself. Yeah. Okay. What 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 was the next stage? What what happened next? So I mean, after that, you couldn't get much deeper or darker now. After that, um, the RPA actually picked me up. So, a guy called the RPA for, for the RPA for uh, listeners who don't know rugby is uh, is the players' union, um, professional players' union. So they they came to you, Mark. Uh, uh, someone came to you from the RPA. So Mike McCarthy came to me from the from the RPA, and Richard Bryan as well was very much in contact with me as well, and. You know, Mike. Mike came to me a couple of days after I'd got back from hospital, and we just we just kind of grew a relationship from then. He was an ex-player, um, and you know, I could really relate with him with with things, and we had some common ground. And I think during that that time, he really became a big figure to me in terms of the help he was giving me. You know, constantly checking up on me because I think after it happened, like I was just embarrassed, like players I'd played with or friends that I'd found out, I was just embarrassed. Um, I think that was the overriding feeling for me. So I just locked myself away in four walls and I didn't want to speak to anybody else. And, you know, I, they then said, you know, you need to see a psychiatrist and, and get some help. So the next step was I got I got sent off to a psychiatrist on um, in London, you know. So after a conversation with him, he said, you know, fuck, you need to you need to go to rehab. You need to go to rehab now. I gave him an insight into how much I was using my childhood issues I had. And, you know, I, I seen him writing this stuff down and and it, it was like two, three, four pages. He was just writing of um, issues I had. And by the end, you know, he just said, you need to go to rehab and you need to sort yourself out. So the next step was I I went to rehab in South Africa. Why South Africa? Was it because they just happened to do it really well down there? So the rehab that I went to has got a really good reputation. And I think because of how much I was using and obviously I'd had a bit of a network of people anyway within England, uh, people who are quite hard users, they, they like to send them off to countries where they don't know anybody. And, you know, because if I was in England, it takes one phone call for me to say, oh, can you come and pick me up? And then I'm gone through the door and then I know my way around England and there's less less likely for me to do that in South Africa. Like I don't know anybody there and just get out of the environment I was in. Um, so that, that was the reason to go to South Africa. And, and 
the more you take, I guess, the worse the rehab. So presumably the rehab was absolutely horrendous. So the re- the, re- the actual facility was, was really nice. Um, and the people, you know, other people that were in the rehab, you know, it was a real array of different people, you know, one guy that was in there, his family was worth $10 billion. And there was another guy in there that was a lawyer. And there was all these personalities that some of them really successful, but because they just had their demons, they couldn't fight them. They, they, they become into a shadow. And, um, as you say there, when I, when I got to the rehab, I had to detox and because I'd been taking these drugs, you know, some days I was taking 40 tablets, my, my insides, my immune system, my, I had, you know, I couldn't use the toilet for weeks at a time because inside was just so blocked up. And mm. literally, I remember it. I got there on the Thursday, and then they they like weaned you off the the drugs you're on. And for seven days, I sweated, didn't sleep. Uh, my skin was white. I remember looking at my eyes in the mirror. My eyes were red. I had yellow bags underneath my eyes. I lost I lost a lot of weight, like 10 kilos in a in a week. It was it was it was horrible. Um, the the cold turkey that I went, some of the drugs I was taking were were from um, the same family as heroin. And mm-hmm. I remember one of the reps saying it was one of the worst um, detoxes they've seen since they've been there. Did you um, could you have walked out any time, or were you were you were you locked into this establishment? Yeah. So. You are locked into the establishment and you have to right. get sign off from um, from your psychiatrist who sent you over there and touching on touching on something now. Um, the the actual rehab itself. So when I was there, it, it is a bubble. You're in you're in four walls and kind of the philosophy they go go by there is. Um, you get sent to a lot of NA meetings and AA meetings, which are Narcotics Anonymous and um, Cocaine Anonymous, um, Alcohol Anonymous. So you go to these meetings weekly and, and their philosophy is that you as a person um, have an illness. Addiction is an illness you're born with. That's in your brain, ingrained in your brain. They believe one day, you know, they're going to find scans and they're going to find um, a part of your brain that has this, that's been inherited from your mum or from whoever. And I think straight away, it just didn't resonate with me. I, you know, I've always wanted facts and figures and, and hearing that, I was just, I just didn't believe in it. Mm. So I, I, um, there's a first facility where you go to for the detox, second facility that you go to where, you're still locked in, but you get time when you're able to go out by yourself. Mm. Um, and then there's a third facility, which is a complete sober sober living facility. So I'd been in the first facility for two months, and I was about to go into the second facility. And I had a bit of an argument with the, with the rehab in regards to going to the second facility. They didn't think I was ready, and they wanted me to do another course, which was another couple of weeks. And I'd seen people come and go in four weeks, in three or four weeks, and it was starting to frustrate me how I wasn't going to the other the other house. Mm-hmm. So I I had a meeting with them, and I basically said, "Look, I'm I'm leaving." So I I left the rehab. I had to ring my psychiatrist and say, "You need to sign me out." So he signed me out. Obviously, he didn't want to. I should have been staying there for another couple of weeks, and. 
as soon as I signed myself out, so I got in contact with a couple of people from the rehab. Um, I had money in my bank, so I I booked out Airbnbs that were on Market Street in Cape Town, which if people know, it's like pretty much the capital capital party place in, in South Africa. Um, so I was going there, met up with people from the rehab that had, that had gone out and just relapsed straight away. Mm. Um, and for three or four weeks, I was taking the hard, hard drugs for three or four weeks. I'd ended up in literally places you see in films when there's guys that have ripped clothes on, they sat there, you know, injecting stuff. And this went on for, for three or four weeks. And I had people at home that, that knew that I'd left the rehab trying to get me back. Everyone was desperate to try and get me back. And I was taking these drugs every day for a couple of weeks. And it got to the point in the end when I when I had no money left and people had been begging me to book a flight for me to get back. They didn't know where I was. They didn't know who I was with. You know, I was getting over 40 calls a day wanting to know where I was. And I just turned my phone off. And then eventually I had I had no money left and I agreed to I agreed to go on a flight back. So this this date was booked for the flight. And this is a story not not that many people know, only a handful of people know. So on this day, when the when the flight was was arranged, I had two people that I that I'd been doing drugs with for the last couple of weeks in the apartment I was staying in. And they knew I was leaving on that day. So I left the apartment and I went out to get to get a few things like a bottle of water or you know whatever it might be and when I came back they had taken all my money stolen a lot of stuff and they'd left so I had in my apartment I'd managed to leave my iPad and my passport in the safe Mm -hmm. everything else a lot of stuff had gone trainers tops money everything had gone so I got there and you know, I was just like, fuck, what am I going to do? Like, everything's gone. And I relied on these people for weeks and everything just came crashing down, like how they'd done this to me. And what I did was I, so I got, I got two straws and I, I tied, um, I tied them up with like electrical tape and I got some washing up powder and I just I sniffed a huge line of this washing powder absolutely massive and the apartment I was in the one next door to it that guy owned the apartment and I started having a seizure around the apartment um so I'm banging around banging everything banging the wall the guys the guys banging on the wall trying to get in and then he's got the key so eventually he comes in and I remember looking down I've got blood phlegm everything all over me and I just remember being outside, head looking up at the sky. I could just hear voices. I could hear so many voices. And I think I can't really remember much after that. Like at 20, 30 minutes later, I was in an ambulance. And I remember coming to, and then I was, I was trying to get up. I was trying to get up. And I got out, and, and the ambulance let me out. And I think I was about 10 minutes away from where I was uh, on Market Street. And I was trying to get back to the apartment I was at to to get my passport and I was walking back and I was hearing all these voices in my head people were looking at me I had blood all down my top um I was just trying to get back I was asking people you know where's Market Street and people were looking at me funny and eventually I got back to the apartment and I the guy was looking at me like how the fuck are you here like you're supposed to be in hospital like what are you doing here 
And I was like, I need my, I need my, I need my passport. I need to get to the airport. I need my iPad. So grab my things, go back outside. When I say things, I just had my passport and my iPad. I've still got a T-shirt that's got blood all over it. Get outside, and then I, the airport's about half an hour away, and I had no money. So I'm walking around, literally crying and begging people, take me, take me to the airport, take me to the airport. I need to get to the airport. Like I need to get home. And no one would take me. So eventually, I found this taxi driver, and I. I give him my iPad, so I gave him a, a brand new iPad just to take me 20 minutes down the road. So he, Mark, he that, 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 that's uh, an absolutely unbelievable story, and um, I'm sure people's hearts are going to listen to that. Um, but you, okay, you eventually traded an iPad for a for a ride to the airport. Yeah. Okay. Go ahead. So I I traded the the iPad for a lift to the airport and then I got to the airport and then on the flight on the way back I remember I just started getting cold turkey again and it was just horrible and I I was on a flight sat next to someone sweating sweating I I I drank as much alcohol as I could as much free alcohol as I could get and then the the flight um, attendants actually stopped giving me alcohol because of the state I was in and then I landed back in England got taken home. And the first thing I did, I was just trying to get drugs. I was trying to get drugs. I remember walking around near where I lived and I was going up to homeless people asking, where can I get drugs? Where can I score some drugs? Like, and this went on for, you know, for weeks, went on for absolute weeks. And I was finding drugs and then taking them and then drinking alcohol from first thing in the morning. And this just carried on going. This carried on going for, for weeks. Did you? Where were you staying at this stage? Were you still living? So I was staying. I was staying with my um my well my ex partner now, but I was staying with her and and our child. Mm-hmm. Um, Mark, that, that that's just desperate story. Um, if anything, I think it was to to get worse because you you always said that uh, you wanted um you you missed the people of your own blood around you and. You'd always been wondering about your 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 natural father, and you'd always asked your natural mother about it. Um, so what what what? How did that lead on? So on one of the days when I'd got bad, like I touched on then, I'd I'd been taking all these drugs and drinking a lot of alcohol, and I kind of just had nothing nothing left, and then I, I needed to know who I needed to know about my backstory and about my dad. So I, I spoke to my real mum, I got in contact with her. And, you know, I, I said at the start about us going from food bank to food bank and and um, not having any clothes and not having any money. But this, these are only things I found out most recently in that conversation. So I never knew that. I'd always never reached out to her because I was like, fuck, she doesn't, she doesn't want to know who I am. You know, she got rid of me. I didn't know what the circumstances were around her giving me up for adoption. And, you know, she told me, she said, and she had proof of all this as well. It wasn't like she just said it to, to, to look good. You know, she she took me to food banks and she did the best she could. And the hardest thing ever for her was handed me over. And for years, I'd, I'd never even fucking messaged her on a birthday or Christmas because I was so deeply involved in myself and thinking, she didn't want anything to do with me, and she'd give me up, and that's the that's why the way the way I am now. And 
I had this conversation with her and she and she told me about that and then you know I'd always wanted to know who my dad was I'd, I'd never really had as I, as I touched on earlier that that family around me and I just wanted a photo that's all I wanted I wanted a photo I wanted to know who he was and she goes into telling me you know I'm not gonna tell you I'm not gonna tell you um and I was like you need to tell me like I'm I'm your son I need to know exactly who my dad is and she goes um so she was in care when she was younger you know similar to me and she ran away from from care and she went from you know food bank to food bank uh, all over the country and she ended up at this one food bank so there was two men and a, two men and a lady and they just said look we're squatting um in this place not too far away five minutes away you can come and stay there if you want to and she said you know yeah i've got no food i've got no money um you know this could this could be this could work for me so it's, it's a roof over my head something that she hadn't had so she went there and she she got raped by one of the guys and then you know that was my dad so she told me that and when she told me that i you know i physically felt my heart just rip into two like mm-hmm. I, I still can't gauge the pain from from hearing that and i think everything just all from the years just hit me in in one go like all the isolation everything growing up then having that little that little thing in my mind thinking you know maybe one day i'm gonna meet my dad or have this relationship and everything had just come around full circle and and that, just, and that you you kind of I think it was was it that the day you found that out that you kind of lot you really really lost it and it, it led to an arrest. Yeah, I my my mind my mind just completely went. I I remember drinking two two and a half bottles of gin. Well, I don't remember drinking. This is just what I was told afterwards because there was empty bottles. Drank two and a half bottles of gin straight, like with with no with nothing. That that's how bad my mind had gone. I could drink them like they were bottles of Diet Coke, and I was just, I was just so so when when I was at mine, it was actually my my partner, my friend, my my friend's partner, and my friend's partner actually worked in in mental health, and she she said, um, he's he's, he's having a psycho psychotic episode from what I was saying. I was just saying stuff that didn't make sense um i was throwing stuff at the wall and they were con- trying to control me and they rang up to get me sectioned and they couldn't get me sectioned so the police had to come so the police came and you know by then i'd i'd thrown stuff at the wall and um the police came you know i headbutted one of the police i said said comments to to all the police and got taken and got put in a cell Uh, it's not an easy story, uh, Mark, and I think that people will be feeling uh, massively emotional, uh, even though people who've never met you. Um, we did say this is two parts, so we leave you um, after your outburst. We, we, we leave you in prison next week. I think um, we'll, we can carry on the story. Uh, uh, just to say, though, that the whole point is that Mark, uh, through his experiences, has got so much advice. Uh, so much to share with people who are going through tough times of any sort, and we will be coming to those. Uh, but for the moment, um, thanks ever so much for joining us, and uh, please join us for part two 
um, of the MJ podcast and, and for episode three of the MJ podcast uh, next week. And um, Mark, uh, I think everyone would uh, say brilliantly spoken today and uh, we'll speak to you again next week.